As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Instead of taking up that gym membership that you wouldn't use even if the gyms were open, how's about subscribing to The Athletic for just £4 a month? You'll get unrivaled football coverage with analysis and in-depth features from the very best writers around, exclusive Q&As with Athletic staff, and ad-free versions of all The Athletic's podcasts, including this one. Find out more and sign up today at theathletic.com forward slash league show. Hello there, welcome to the Totally Football League show Extra Time, which is brought to you in association with Paddy Power. I'm Ali Maxwell joining you, and as ever alongside me, and delighted to have his full wages reinstated after the podcast salary cap was lifted, it's George Ellick. George, how are you doing? I'm good, mate. Very excited about the increased pay. That's the first I've heard of it, so so good news. I was, I was wondering... That is the big news, isn't it, in the EFL? Certainly off the field this week. No more salary caps as were imposed a few months ago in League One and League Two. Those have been overturned, George, and we're going to hear more about that later on. Yeah, we are. We're going to be speaking to Ben Robinson, who's the owner and chairman of Burton Albion, because since this story's broken, we've seen lots of fans of certain clubs in League One and League Two, probably the clubs who have a bit more to spend celebrating the news, but there is another side to this and we've got to look at what it means we've got to look at the sustainability in football that this these salary caps were brought in to try and uphold so we're going to speak to Ben somebody who knows a lot more than you and I about how to run a football club about what he thinks this means if this is good news bad news and where it leaves the EFL in general but lots of football to talk about as well Yes, plenty. We're going to be doing our midweek reviews, doing our players and teams of the week. A couple of sat managers in League One, any Swindon fans who haven't heard the news, bad news, I'm afraid, it's not you. And then instead of doing a weekend preview, we're going to mix it up a bit because all three leagues have pretty exciting relegation scraps. So with our partners, Paddy Power, we're going to be going through them all and just looking at the pictures down towards the bottom of the table. Yeah, a relegation special of sorts later on in the pod, but let's get straight to it with some midweek reviews. Now, sir, remember, a tattoo is permanent, so tell me one more time what you want. Uh, well, I want Bruno Fernandes knocking a liver bird off its perch with a free kick, with Ollie as a kind of, like, god in the sky. Oh, and Champions 2021 on top as well. I can't see anything going wrong there, Man United fan. But if things don't go exactly as expected, Paddy Power's Acker Insurance gets you a free bet if one leg of your 4-plus fold Acker lets you down. Paddy Power! Max free bet £10, min odds 1-5 to five on each leg. Online exclusive, excludes shop bets, excludes enhanced match odds. T's and C's apply, 18-plus, begumwellaware.org. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic. This is the Totally Football League show Extra Time with George Ellick and Ali Maxwell. So first up, as always, it is our midweek review. And in the Championship, not many to choose from here, just three games. But the Championship team of the week, looking like they might end up being the Championship team of the season, Ali. (laughs) That's the one we have to call them now. Contractually, for a moment at least, league leaders Brentford. And they hit the top of the champ for the first time since being promoted to this level in 2014. 
of course, they're still going, still unbeaten. 21 now, 47 points in those 21 games. That's what's taken them to the top of the table after a, I mean, I wouldn't even say a particularly slow start, but certainly the recent form is what has them up there. And as so often has been the case on this current run of eight wins in nine, they had to do it the hard way against Reading, coming from behind to win for the third game in a row and for the fifth time in the last eight games, scoring first against Brentford doesn't seem to make much of a difference. And this was against a, a good Reading side who I felt were the better side, certainly in the first half. A fairly soft penalty had Reading ahead and then Josh De Silva produced a solo special and, and, and showed anyone watching why he's tipped for such big things at the very top of the game to level things up. But it was around the hour mark, George, where the game really opened up and immediately you felt that would suit Brentford more so than Reading. That's where they really thrive. And and that was the case on 86 minutes, a deep cross chested down by Tony, thumped home by De Silva. That was Tony's second chested assist in a week and somehow, implausibly, puts him top of the championship assist charts as well as leading the golden boot race, which is absolutely unbelievable. He pulled further clear at the top of the goal-scoring charts, tapping in a rebound two minutes later to make it look comfortable for Brentford when really it was anything but. But that's what they've been doing. They just keep racking up the wins. It's pretty scary for the rest of the division. I suppose if we're holding them now to the very lofty standards of, of potential title winners, I would say, you know, you probably won't always come from behind. So try and tighten up a little bit. That clean sheet record from earlier in the season has, uh, has taken a bit of a hit. At the moment, it doesn't matter, but it could come back to bite them at some point in the next few games. But certainly our team of the week, George, our league leaders, Brentford, the team to beat in the championship. In terms of a player of the midweeks, I mean, it probably would be between Josh De Silva or, or potentially Ivan Tony, but I've just rendered them <laughs> ineligible. Yeah, I had a I had a sleepless night last night thinking <laughs> which of those two was I going to choose, and then when my alarm went off at seven thirty, there was a little WhatsApp from Ali Maxwell saying, "By the way, I'm doing Brentford team of the week, so you can choose a player of the week <laughs> later." I mean, I'm not sport for choice here, to be honest. You look at the Rotherham-Cardiff game. Cardiff won the game 2-1. Rotherham were probably the better team, but for Ojo's opener, their defending was absolutely abysmal, as it was for Bennett's winner from a set piece. So I'm going to draw a line through that one. Sheffield Wednesday had to beat Wickham. You know, this was a must-win game for them if they were going to get out of the relegation places now and also the, the scrap itself under Neil Thompson. And they did so with pretty much minimal fuss. It was a 2-0 win and it was a good performance across the park. Barry Bannon played very well in midfield, as did Hutchinson. Jordan Rhodes scored a pretty rare goal. Patterson made himself a nuisance up front. But it was the two wing-backs who really impressed me. Kadeem Harris on the right-hand side with a great assist. But I'm going to give player of the midweek to Adam Reach, a player whose star has somewhat fallen in the last couple of years. If you look on who scored, they have a list. They work out what positions uh, players are playing, not necessarily by design, but based on where they spend their time on the pitch, basically by their heat map. And according to who scored, Adam Reach this season has played left midfield, right midfield, left back in the hole, wing back on the left hand side, left of a front three, left of a wide four, centre midfield, right hand side of a three and a right wing back. He is an absolute Swiss army knife of a player for Sheffield Wednesday in a team full of them really because you think of Patterson, you think of Harris, you think of all these guys who can basically be deployed anywhere. Reach was the key player for Sheffield Wednesday here. He, he play, played in a ball early on. For Patterson, who nearly opened the scoring, he then had a shot cleared off the line when it was still nil-nil. He got the second goal of the game, which was a deflected effort and was just a nuisance down the left-hand side consistently for Sheffield Wednesday. You know, he's a player who we've seen in the past can do the spectacular very well, but on this day, it was just an all-round performance which helped his team to an important win. So well done, Adam Reach, our player of the midweek. Right then, in League One, we had a much larger slate of fixtures and a few contenders here for Team of the Week. Certainly Wigan with their away win at Northampton, a huge result, that one. We'll be talking about both of those teams shortly. At Shrews beating Sunderland, a really impressive come-from-behind win and, and Argyle winning at Accrington as well. But I'm going to go with Fleetwood Town. They get the gong here. They were, uh, after 15 minutes or so, 1-0 down to a team in Doncaster Rovers that had won nine in their last 10 in the league, five in a row, where Fleetwood themselves were nine without a win. And their season seemingly petering out a little bit after the strange departure of Joey Barton. Simon Grayson in charge now. And if this is how they're going to be playing under him, then the season certainly won't be a write-off because from 1-0 down, 
Fleetwood showed composure to cope with that early goal and, and then pulled their socks up and worked their way back into the game, comfortably the better side from that point. Playing a 3-5-2 system, which Grayson's implemented since his arrival. Kyle Vassell up top with Paddy Madden. Vassell, really pacey, very uh, very mobile striker who has struggled with injuries, but I think could be a good foil for the pure poacher Paddy Madden. He got his first goal of the season, Vassell, before Madden took advantage of some kamikaze goalkeeping, you have to say, from young Brentford Loney Ellery Bolcom in the Doncaster goal. He finished well. And then a sumptuous Danny Andrews strike. He's one of those left backs who you don't mind shooting from 30 yards because his left peg is so good. In this case, it was a it was a dummy shot on his left foot, shift inside, right foot curler into the top corner. Danny Andrews showing that he can do it with both feet and that put the game out of reach, really. So a well-deserved win for the Cod Army, the better side on the night. And it's been a while, I think, since we could say that about Fleetwood, certainly against one of the top teams at the level. Defensively, excellent, really, really good. And look, I'm not going to get carried away. They've got a really tough run ahead and this is the performance level that they need if they're to continue picking up points. But maybe that suggestion that the season was somewhat petering out might be a little harsh if this is how Grayson's Fleetwood are going to play. Yeah, a brilliant result for Fleetwood and a very good, if not totally unexpected, win as well for MK Dons, who went to Rochdale and beat them 4-1. But there was one player in this game who really stood out in what was a very good performance. It wasn't new signing Matt O'Reilly, who's found a very early eye for goal. It wasn't Will Grigg, who didn't catch fire in the snow, but did get two assists on his full debut. Well, his second debut, I should say, after his loan spell there a few years ago. But it was the man who's probably been the best player for MK Dons so far this season in Scott Fraser. Now, the the headlines here is Scott Fraser's goal because it is absolutely brilliant and it sums up Fraser perfectly. He gets the ball in midfield, drives forward, beats two men and then a sumptuous curling left-footed finish into the far-hand corner. And this is what we've become used to seeing from Fraser. He's a midfielder who can do so much on the ball. He's not particularly quick, but he can still carry it very, very well. He is a brilliant passer and he's just been the creative force for MK so far this season. This was the perfect game for him as well. We know that Rochdale are a side who look to press, who look to play, and that leaves a lot of space in behind for a player like him to exploit. For MK this season, I think you and I, you know, we spoke to Russell Martin on this podcast a couple of months ago, and I think we probably anticipated that they would kick on a little bit more than they have done so far. They're still very much in mid-table. But this feels like a project that's improving very, very quickly. You look at the players who they brought in, in January as well. Zach Jules scoring here as well, a player who has come in from Walsall who we expect to be really impressive, a left-footed centre-back. Harry Darling, who came in from Cambridge, who MK fans are absolutely smitten with already. And Fraser himself, he is he's the talisman, he's the captain, he's the creative force, and he's proving himself to be a great goal scorer as well. So a good all-round performance from MK, but Fraser, again, as he often is, the star into League Two now, Ali, and who could have predicted that Stevenage would go up to Tranmere and do a job on one of the form teams in the league? No one, George, no one. Uh, You're desperate for me to tell (laughs) you and the listener that we basically disagreed pre-game on how this one would go. I thought, easy home win for a Tranmere side who had won five in a row heading into this one. Uh, And you decided to have a bet on Stevenage instead, which, (laughs) given that they're 21st in the table and finding it tough to pick up wins. I mean, logically, it didn't make sense, but your brain <laughs> works differently to others. And look, mate, at half time, I was feeling pretty happy with my prediction. Stevenage didn't have a shot in the first half, but clearly that was all part of the plan. It's not Shots like... Shots are overrated. <laughs> it's not like, to be fair, Tramir were peppering their goal. They had a couple of efforts in the first period, repelled by emergency loan goalkeeper David Stockdale. I think we both missed... Stockdale going to Stevenage. It's easy to do with these emergency seven or 10 day loans. I mean, he surely shouldn't be playing in goal for a League Two side. He's He's been a brilliant goalkeeper at championship level. I know he has, uh, well, he's now in his mid-30s and the last few years he has struggled for game time. But, I mean, his last game in League Two before this emergency loan spell was January 2009, 12 years ago. And he certainly showed with some of his reflexes that he's uh, more than good enough at this level. And then for Stevenage, having, I mean, I was going to say weathered a storm, but it was more of a drizzle. Uh, than anything. Having got to the hour mark at nil-nil, then things started to turn. They grew in confidence and actually it was Stevenage who finished the game stronger, which again didn't really go to form, I guess. Uh, A Stevenage free kick was saved. Matty Stevens up top for Stevenage then hit the bar. And then on 82 minutes, George, at nil-nil, 
Alex Ravel turned around. He looked at striker Danny Newton sitting on the bench behind him. One goal in 25 games before this one. <laughs> he told him to get stripped and be a hero. And I think what happened next is best told through the medium of song. And listener, as the music starts, just so you know, Danny Newton is trotting onto the pitch as a substitute. Stevenage getting ready to take a goal kick. Still Newton, what an impact! On the pitch for a matter of seconds. And he may well have got Stevenage the most unlikely of wins. Unbelievable stuff. Uh, George, I don't know about you, but I always kind of roll my eyes when I see that someone's still doing the Titanic music thing in the year of our Lord 2021. But in fairness, generally, I then watch the clip with a gigantic smile on my face and a, and a tear in the eye. And that was the case here. Danny Newton's second goal of the season now and a really, really important one. A fabulous win for Stevenage at Tranmere. And in doing so, they put six points between themselves and the relegation places. That makes them our team of the week, Stevenage, in League Two. What about the standout player in League Two's midweek proceedings? Yeah, this was a perfect centre-forwards performance. And you know, I spoke about Harry Darling going from Cambridge to MK Dons. He was replaced by a Tottenham low knee called Jabril Okadina. And I have no doubt that Jabril's going to have a you know, a successful career going forward. But I think if you ask him in a few years' time, did you ever play against Ian Henderson? He will want the ground to swallow him up because <laughs> Ian Henderson, the 36-year-old, did an absolute job on this Premier League low knee. I mean, he scored two and he assisted two in this 4-1 win. The first goal was all him. Ockendina on the ball, trying to play out from the back. Henderson, 36 years old, pressing him, tackling him, getting the ball, driving forward and passing it into the corner. The same persistence on his part made the second, forcing Ockendina into a mistake before setting up the goal. The third goal, again, was a quality through ball from him. And then the fourth, the kind of Ian Henderson goal that we're used to seeing. No, not a penalty, but a six-yard box tap-in. This was a perfect display from, I guess, it, it kind of mirrors Salford's season. I think we probably expected to see this more often from Henderson. I think we probably expected to see this more often from Salford. They've been, at times, disappointing for a side who I think many expected to be right up towards the top of the table. It's not too late for them to get there. But it does feel like the addition of Paul Coots, the return of Richie Towell from injury, you know, they've suddenly got such a strong core to their team. And performances like this, you know, against a Cambridge side who went into the game top of the league and were there on merit is really, really impressive. So Ian Henderson showing there's life in the old dog yet. And I'm sure <laughs> Ockendina himself will have better days to come. Absolutely. Right. That's midweek rounded up. Quick fire still to come. Plenty. The relegation dogfight of all three leagues will be discussed. But next, we're talking money, money, money. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This is the Totally Football League show Extra Time, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. So the big news this week, which we'll tackle now, is that the salary caps in Leagues 1 and 2 are no more, at least for now. Uh, a quick Recap on the situation for you. Back in August of 2020, the clubs passed a proposal for salary caps of £2.5 million in League One and £1.5 million in League Two. This was good news for owners trying to save money in pandemic times and not so great for players having to take wage cuts or even be put on furlough. As a result, the PFA criticised the EFL for rushing through the vote and described their adoption of it as unlawful and unenforceable and have now been withdrawn. The PFA winners in this sense. The question is, what does this mean now? And to try and work that out, we've enlisted Burton chairman Ben Robinson, who's just been in a League One meeting discussing this very matter. Yeah, it was quite a lengthy meeting um, that um, lasted about two hours uh, and um, obviously confirmation that the PFA had appealed 
to arbitration to the decision against the um, salary cap procedure that um, we thought had been implemented in the current season. But it's reassuring, you know, that um, the league executive said that given the fact that it's highly likely that most clubs wouldn't be able to meet uh, the 60% turnover factor, that with no gate income, obviously, or no commercial income, that clubs hopefully would not be penalised. And that any, obviously, I think any action would probably uh, only take place if from this point onwards, clubs um, signed uh, further players. And obviously, clubs can only sign now players who are free agents who are currently unemployed, you know, so... So that was reassuring. When did you become aware that there was a case being brought by the PFA to the EFL? Well, to be honest with you, I, I hadn't followed um, the fact that there was every possibility that they that they um, would take action. Um, I know that when this was debated amongst the clubs uh, and it was passed, that um, the PFA straight away said they're not happy because um, that that those conditions and those salary caps could severely restrict their clients, their players' earning capacity. So really in the early days, that obviously there was rumblings that um, they, they, they weren't happy. And um, therefore, inevitably, I suppose that that challenge was to be expected. You're somebody, Ben, you know, when we met a couple of years ago, I came to interview for a BBC programme about how to run a football club. You know, you're, you're held as somebody who's done amazing things with a community club and you look at the fan bases that are generally happy with this news it's generally mm. those with with rich benefactors with rich owners who are looking to spend mm. money how have you thought that both the idea and the implementation and then the abolition of the salary cap where have you stood on those on those issues well i think that obviously i think this debate this focus um, i think it came about obviously through the demise of berry and the dialogue was, well, you know, how do we prevent um, a repetition of Berry going out of business? And um, this was a, obviously um, uh, an exchange of, of ideas and comment between uh, at a League One meeting. Um, and I think it was the executive said, well, um, this thing stand. Um, the rules don't. There's nothing in the rules that stops an owner who decides to go to the bank and say, you know, lend me half a million pounds because I fancy our chances of promotion <laughs> this coming season and borrow more than that. And in that process, put the stability of the club, you know, by um, putting the assets up as security. And I think that's where the debate started. You know, um, I mean, where I sit on this and where my club sits on this is that obviously you've got a feel for clubs like Portsmouth and Sunderland. Um, I thought the existing plan, you know, the um, salary cost management protocol was um, a fair regulation because it enabled um, the bigger clubs whose playing budget uh, is made up in quite significant numbers uh, in terms of the gate receipts. You know, So you take, for example, I don't know what Portsmouth's average gate receipt used to be, but they regularly got 18,000, didn't they? Uh, Sunderland, I've, I've looked at Sunderland in amazement and wow, what fantastic support they get, over 25,000. And clubs like Burton, which is a very small supported club, we were getting crowds of averaging like 3,200. So, okay, from a purely self-interest point of view, having the bigger clubs competing with the smaller clubs, um, working off the same budget, um, meant a level playing field, but... But if I if I was a Sunderland or a Portsmouth, I wouldn't be happy with that because because it restricts um, their ability to obviously uh, throw a lot more money at it, you know. And also as well, um, it, it, within that framework, um, the amount of money that players could receive would be adjusted considerably. You mentioned those clubs who you know the Portsmouth, Sunderland, Charlton, another one, and I think those cheering this news in the last couple of days seem to not have an issue necessarily with restrictions, but want it to reflect gate receipts and income going forward and would accept a, a different way that a salary cap was implemented. Has there been any suggestion or any ideas or do you have any ideas of how you would like to see a sustainable 
spending cap introduced mm. in the EFL? Um, well, I, 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 I don't see um, any any fair price because if you're going to put a limit, uh, if you're going to cap it, and like the suggestion was, is you know, 2.5 million for League One, 1. 1.5 million for League Two, and then straight away you're putting all the clubs in the same bracket, you know, and 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 that doesn't reflect the size of the club, right? So even though it, obviously it's going to impact high club, but I think to be fair. I think this is one where you you, you forget self-interest, you know, in all honesty. You say, well, this is a decision that you need to look at, you know, in, in an impartial way, which is best for the competition, it's best for the sport, you know. And I think this um, salary cost management protocol process where we could spend 60% of, of, of um, most of our income um, and only 100% of football fortune income, you know, which is cup runs and obviously um, selling players and what have you, um, levels of income that you could only take into account uh, once that money has been received in, in, in the club's bank, you know. And obviously there's other areas where clubs uh, could, uh, where directors and owners could make donations um, and they, they could introduce equity into the club. But um, that capital could not be repaid and the clubs would have to sign a letter to say that um, those monies wouldn't be repayable because if they are, then it amounts to a debt, it amounts to a loan, you know, which defeats the object. And I think the things with the league, that's what they were trying to presumably sort of um, force clubs into a level of expenditure, which was a lot lower than what um, they were operating on previously. Before we let you go, Ben, and we really do appreciate your time, just want to ask you a quick question on, on what it's been like being the owner and chairman of a football club over the past season during COVID times, and especially with Burton Albion. You know, you, you appointed a new manager in the summer. You had to make the difficult decision to replace him and recruit a you know a big name in Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank. Given your position in the table, you also made the decision to, to reinvest in the squad in January heavily as well. Mm-hmm. How has it been yeah. for you to try and deal with all this whilst not getting the gate receipts in, whilst, whilst having a, a pretty financially unstable time? Yeah. Well, I think the thing is, you know, we as a club, you know, we've got a great charity, the Burton Army Community Trust, and they're the lead charity in in our, in our area. Um, and they've been supporting uh, with the delivery of food parcels for um, families in need, volunteering, supporting with the testing, the COVID testing, uh, that was a pop-up initially, and then more latterly, the the, the, um, the lateral rapid testing. And then we've been a vaccination centre since last um, December. Um, and I think the thing is that you, you look at this terrible virus and pandemic, and um, it's affecting everybody. It's affecting everybody. And I think that throughout of that, through, through that, there's been a great spirit, you know, um, and maybe a lot of people have assessed their lifestyles and what they do, and their values and what's important to them, you know. And I think it's, it's to see that spirit running through the community, you know, is is, is tremendous. Um, and I think probably that's helps our club, you know, looking at the situation we're in uh, and uh, saying it's tough times, but it's, it's tough times for everybody, you know. It's not just an individual club that's going through a financial crisis or a dip in fortune, you know, uh, where maybe one of the main sponsors has gone bust or their business has suffered. You know, this is um, this is a terrible problem that affects everybody, businesses and families, you know. Uh, and it's been very much a question of, you know, being strong, you know, and, and thinking um, all about, about the bigger picture and what needs to be done supporting our staff and their families, you know, um, we've been very good. Uh, Two-thirds of our season ticket holders renewed their season tickets. Uh, A number of our sponsors continue to support us, even even in the knowledge that they might not get to see any games live before January. And January came and that didn't happen. And they've continued to support us, you know, and that's that's quite amazing. And that's, you know, it's given us um, a lot of purpose, you know, and it's created a lot of goodwill and a great feeling. 
Well, George, that was a, a pretty interesting listen, especially with Ben Robinson off the back of that meeting this afternoon. Uh, what were your thoughts while talking to Ben? This is a, a topic with so many different perspectives and so many different strands and strains that it can be hard to know where to start. Yeah, it can be. And that's why I think Ben's level-headedness and kind of understanding the situation from both sides was really refreshing. Um, I listened to the um, Chapman and Ornstein podcast this morning, um, which I recommend any listeners should do. You can find it on the Athletic app or on Spotify. And there they spoke to both the lawyer who represented the PFA and Andy Holt. And in that case, you've got two people from polar opposite perspectives. Andy Holt very much of the feeling that the, you know, the PFA shouldn't have behaved the way they did. The lawyer clearly representing the PFA, quite the opposite. And hearing Ben there, who you know is the custodian of a club with a, with a smaller budget, with a smaller fan base, as he himself said, but him looking at the positives from the meeting with the EFL today, which, which said that no, you know, there won't be any sanctions for any clubs who fail to um, adhere with the new, you know, who, who effectively overspent, um, but also understanding the concerns of owners of Portsmouth, of um, other big clubs such as Sunderland as well. It, it shows that there is a starting point, I guess, for some negotiation and an understanding there from somebody like Ben, who, for which the, the salary cap and the level, level playing field probably would have given them a competitive edge eventually in time, but an understanding that, you know, there has to be a way to make this work for all parties. So, um, yeah, I was it was refreshing, I thought. Yeah, it's been really interesting to hear various people's points of view. Andy Holt, as you mentioned, on Ornstein and Chapman, he said there are a million options that suit everyone, which uh, seems ambitious given that if there's one thing we have found out from covering these leagues just in the last five years alone, it's that I'm not sure there's anything that suits everyone. But I admire his optimism. He didn't put any forward, I don't think, himself. How about this one from Nicola Palios, who owns Tramir Rovers? She said, I would have a basic salary cap, which can then be supplemented based on average gates. That would reward clubs who look after the fans and allow them to spend more in a sustainable way. Having the extra salary allowance based on gates rather than all commercial revenue would be simpler and much harder to cheat. And it means the difference between top and bottom budget in a league would not be so big as to destroy competition. I think that sounds very sensible from Nicola Palios, which means it probably won't be uh, brought in. I, I think... Look, this has to have been a pretty embarrassing week for the EFL. It was a grand gesture, wasn't it? It was it was strong leadership because they have been accused before of kicking the can down the road, of not fronting up to problems and attacking them head on. And they've been accused before of, of, of things lasting too long, of decisions not being made and people squabbling and not in agreement. So it was a surprise at how quickly this got passed, really. And it was slightly out the blue. I can kind of understand and appreciate why they were trying to force clubs into lower expenditure because regardless of the pandemic, that's something that, that we've seen the need for, I think, certainly in Leagues 1 and 2 for the last few years and in the Championship, you'd say, as well. But of course, this was pretty disastrous from a player's perspective. And as has become clear, uh, it, it wasn't necessarily something they could legally enforce. I think aside from the players, it was going to have a gigantic impact on the way clubs would have to operate uh, in terms of recruitment and in terms of their squad size in a way that I'm not sure was necessary and I think probably would have caused larger issues down the line. I mean, I bang on about this quite a lot and, and, and maybe I'm being naive, but I think the SCMP, which was nominally in place before the salary cap, should be good. I think it could be good. It clearly hasn't been and clearly needs to be regulated more strongly but I think the EFL should be able to find a way to cap spending, to bring down spending, but to allow clubs to spend sustainably within their means and not just limit them all with one blanket cap. I think you could be strong or you need to be strong with the clubs about providing regular up-to-date financial snapshots and forecasting because, as Andy Holt himself said, one of the problems is it's too late by the time they find out at the moment that clubs have been overspending or, or misspending. So... Try and be strong with the clubs and make sure that they are providing that up-to-date info and have a sporting penalty for failure to comply. Not a fine, but a sporting penalty. Introduce something that, 
that safeguards clubs, uh, ideally from going out of business as well. It's been talked about before, perhaps owners could be forced, and I know legally this might be tough, to put down a bond of sorts so that if they pull the plug or if they run out of money, there is still a, uh, a supply somewhere tucked away to keep the club running in the interim period. Because we've seen that in the case of Wigan, the club is just being completely gutted from top to bottom. And if and when they do find a new owner, which gets increasingly hard the more they get gutted, well, they're not in much of a position anyway. They're just a shell of a club, really. So, look, that's just my view on it. And I know that it's easy for me to sit here on a podcast and say, do this and do that. Of course, it would take strong leadership and putting some noses out of joint, no doubt. But I think if I could give Rick Parry any credit for his governance of the EFL so far, it's that he's not been shy to to show strong leadership. He's not been shy to put noses out of joint. I just think, as we've seen with a few of these grand gestures, whether it was Project Big Picture, whether it was this, I think some of it's just been a little misdirected. So I'm hopeful that the next grand gesture kind of lands, if you will, can be uh, can be significant, can be positive, because I won't have a go at them for, for trying to bring down spending across the EFL, but clearly there needs to be a, a more robust way of doing it. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the Totally Football League Show Extra Time, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Right, time to just shake things up a little bit on this week's episode. In lieu of our usual midweek previews, we're going to talk relegation battles, partly because across all leagues there are some quite important games this weekend which will impact the relegation battles. But also, let's face it, all three of these relegations are just like your clothes, George, after lockdown three. <laughs> quite tight. Ah, <laughs> my clothes or your clothes? <laughs> your clothes. I've been shedding. I'm shedding out here. Um, George, no, on a serious note, because relegation battles are nothing to laugh about, all three leagues do look like they've got a proper scrap on the cards. Yeah, they really do. And we're going to start on the championship here with the championship relegation scrap. And Paddy Power have priced up the battle. I'm afraid to say for Wickham fans... It's no more bets, please. No more bets. If you put what, £5 sterling, give it to Paddy Power and say, this is on Wickham to get relegated. He's going to say, nope, because all you get back is your fiver. No more bets. Mm. Birmingham, next up at even money. Sheffield Wednesday, 11 to 10. Rotherham are 11 to 4. And then uh, Huddersfield and Coventry, both 4 to 1. Uh, Nottingham Forest are 15 to 2. Luton, 11 to 1. QPR 14 to 1. The eagle eared amongst you. I don't know if that's a thing. I don't know if eagles can even hear. Yeah, big but time. Derby, um, you wouldn't have heard their names there. At the moment, no prices. I think that's just to do with the financial uncertainty around Derby at the moment. So I think Paddy Power just being a little bit careful because the takeover hasn't gone through yet. Talk of some financial issues there. But those are the prices, Ali. Take us away with those occupying the bottom three spots at the moment. Yeah, with pleasure. With pleasure, George. We'll start with Wickham. As you say, Paddy's not taking bets on this anymore. That's because they're 12 points from safety. And for a team that's only got 16 points in 27 games, that clearly feels like too big a gap to bridge. I mean, this is a team that's been defying expectations and laughing in the face of, uh, of pundits like us predicting failure for quite a while now. So I'm sure that they will battle hard, will fight hard. But while they haven't been a walkover by any stretch, they are just so poor in both boxes, George. They do give teams a bloody nose, but invariably they've missed key chances. They've conceded soft goals. They would say as well, they maybe haven't always had the, the, the rub of the green when it comes to key refereeing decisions, but they've conceded eight more than anyone else in the league and they've scored the second fewest and that's not going to get you where you need to be. Uh, I spoke to a Wickham fan, Tom, yesterday and we were drawing parallels with Rotherham of 2016-17. They started the season with Alan Stubbs and then they had 
Kenny Jacket for a few games. And then it was Paul Warren who, who came in as a sort of interim and eventually got the job full time. And, and Rotherham were a desperate side. They they picked up a paltry points tally. But since then, under Paul Warren, they've built, haven't they? They came straight back up and then they went down again, putting up a, a slightly better fight. And then they came up again. And, and now, as you're probably going to tell me soon, they're in quite a good place to stay up and build from there. And, and that should be the blueprint, I suppose, for Wickham, given the, the comparative budgets of the two sides and the way that Rotherham have, have gone about it, I guess. As for Birmingham, they're in there too, a really troubling run of form, just six points in their last 11, and that's why they've sunk into the bottom three. They are desperately poor going forward, Blues. I guess that's the headline. It, it makes it so tough for them to win football matches. They've only scored 11 goals from open play all season. And at the start of the season under Aitor Karanka, you know, I wouldn't go as far as say all was well, but we were kind of we got what we were expecting they only conceded 12 in their first 14 games which felt very Itor Karanka and it felt like he'd be a pretty safe pair of hands in order to to at least set them up defensively uh, for survival but 22 conceded in the next 14 and that's the the sort of slippage that's meant narrow wins have turned into draws draws have turned into defeats and and now they are well not quite staring down the barrel, but they've got a lot of work to do, don't they? It's very tough for me to see how this Birmingham side that doesn't create a lot of chances will suddenly become one overnight. Uh, that's not Karanka for me. There's not much time on the training pitch anyway. And I'm not sure Scott Hogan or the new signing from Aberdeen, Sam Cosgrove, are the type of strikers that will create a ton of chances on their own or are the type of strikers that only need one chance to score. So a lot of work still to do for Birmingham. I'm, I'm Slightly concerned about them, I must say. Uh, and as for Derby, well, as you say, a bit of uncertainty. The takeover, much vaunted, still hasn't gone through, which is concerning. But on the pitch, I mean, the fact that they've picked up the fifth most points in the league in the last 12 games in the championship, and they're still in the relegation zone, I think illustrates just how poorly they started the season under Philip Koku. But it also shows how well Wayne Rooney's done since he took sort of sold charge and it does show why they more so than Birmingham probably will feel confident of survival despite still being in the bottom three they've been defensively excellent haven't they that's been the headline they've done just about enough to create chances for Colin Kazim Richards who's been in really good form but I wouldn't say they're free flowing going forward and that would be a concern if their defensive numbers slip a little bit Christian Bielik's long-term injury we're kind of yet to see the full impact here but he was so good for that month or two that mm. it's hard not to see them missing him in, in a pretty big way. So, you know, I don't think it's quite as simple as, well, they've been on good form since Rooney came in, so they'll punch their way out of it. But they do feel the most likely of the three, I would say. And if they do, George, who, who looks vulnerable to you in that group just above the relegation zone? Well, I'm just going to quickly do my best Mark Chapman impression and run through the table in the championship so that the, <laughs> that the listener can doesn't try to work out all the maths in their heads. I mean, Wickham are bottom on 16 points, Birmingham and Derby next up both on 28. Then we get out of the relegation zone, Sheffield Wednesday 28 after being deducted 6, uh, Rotherham 29, Coventry 31, Forest 32, Huddersfield and QPR both 33. Luton 34 and then even though Preston are priced up as being in it I'm going to leave them out of it for the time being I'm also going to take QPR and Forest and just say they are fine if they continue their form I know Ali you were worried about QPR but in their last five games they've won four of them they've only conceded two goals if they continue that kind of form there's no way they're going to be sucked into it under Chris Hewton Forest are improving now pretty quickly and it would have to take a massive drop off for them to suffer so Luton are going to be the first team that I'm a little bit concerned about. They're on a very poor run of form. But if we look at the teams that they're losing to, Brentford, Blackburn, even a QPR loss from a few weeks ago, which at the time looked pretty odds and like a pretty poor result because of QPR's form since, it looks a little bit better now. They beat Bournemouth, which is a great result. But this game against Birmingham coming up on the weekend is so important to Luton's season. It's kind of hard to overestimate how important it is because if they lose to Birmingham suddenly a team who are currently in the bottom three will just be three points behind them if they win this game they're going to be at least nine points clear of the drop zone so or there will be nine points clear of the drop zone so for Luton it kind of feels like their season is at stake this weekend because a, a defeat will put them right in the mix here I think they'll probably have enough. Um, I think they've just had a difficult run of form. I think under Nathan Jones, the start was so good that maybe expectations are raised to an unlikely level. 
Huddersfield, on the other hand, have completely fallen off a cliff. And if Luton v Birmingham isn't the biggest game of the weekend in the relegation race, then Huddersfield against Wickham must be, because this is a must-win for both teams. We've already written Wickham off, we've written Southend off, we've also written Burton off in the past, and look how that's left us. So maybe we shouldn't do that with Wickham. And a win here would certainly give them that little bit of hope they could get back into it. Huddersfield have been so poor recently, they were fortunate to get a point against Luton. Um, last time out after this game they've got Burrard, Swansea and Derby two points from their last six their attacking output since Josh Carome has been injured has been so so poor for Carlos Corbran he has to get a win here otherwise Huddersfield look very much in danger of going down of the others the teams just above the drop zone we've got Sheffield Wednesday who are in decent form as are Rotherham um, despite losing to Cardiff it was another good display from Paul Warnsman who seemed to be scoring goals for fun at the moment but they have QPR coming up, which is a big game for them. And for Wednesday, they did what they had to do against Wickham. Such an important result. And it's important to remember with them, they're in a bit of a forced position. If they had that extra six points, they'd be up around where Luton are. And yeah, you have to think they have enough quality at the moment, the way that they're winning games, to probably get themselves out of it. That leaves Coventry. And I wasn't worried about Coventry before we recorded this podcast. I wasn't worried about Coventry before I started doing my research. It doesn't really feel like they've let their standards slip at all, but we know how difficult it is for clubs coming out of League One into the Championship to stay there. I wrote a piece for The Athletic, which you can still find all about this and how the gap between the two divisions is so vast that it makes it very hard for even the best League One sides to stay up in the Championship. And so even though Coventry are having a decent time of it at the moment, they are still right in the mix down at the bottom. They're the better side against Watford in midweek sorry on the weekend but their next few fixtures are so difficult they've got Cardiff away next that's arguably the easiest game they've got until mid-March because then they host Norwich then they host Brentford then they go to Swansea so the three the top three in the championship back to back then it's Blackburn then it's Middlesbrough and then it's Derby so right there if you're taking the best teams in the division over the last few months they're playing basically all of them in a, in a run um, with a couple of exceptions. So I find it hard to believe that they're going to be in a better position on the 13th of March when they play Rotherham, followed by Luton and Wickham. So three big games in a row when they get there. So they would be the side that I'm a little bit concerned about, not because of anything that Mark Robbins is doing, not because of anything necessarily that Coventry are doing on the pitch, purely because the way the fixtures have fallen, I've got a feeling they might be the ones playing catch-up come the business end of the season. And that is why you are the number one EFL researcher that I know anyway. <laughs> um, fascinating stuff. That is, I mean, there's there's a lot to unpack there. Definitely some hope, I'd say, for, for Birmingham and, and, and Derby fans and, and maybe some concern for some of the teams that you've mentioned there. I mean, in League One, the relegation picture is absolutely crazy. And I think this is the spiciest of the lot, you have to say. This is certainly the one that caught our eye earlier on in the week when we were thinking of hot topics for this podcast because it looks essentially like there's seven teams and four relegation spots and a real fight to be one of the three that stays up. So Rochdale are at the top of this group of seven teams. Here's my best Mark Chapman at league table impression. <laughs> They're on 26 points from 27, one point behind them. Wimbledon on 25 from 26, and then four teams on 24 points. Bristol Rovers, Wigan, Swindon and Northampton. Now, Swindon have played two games more than the other three in that group. So you have to sort of mark them down, I suppose, based on that. And then at the very bottom, you've got Burton, who only have 19 points. That's five points from safety, but they've played the fewest games out of that group entirely. And George, you're going to talk about them now because bizarrely, even as the team at the very bottom with all of the work to do, if you're taking the temperature of these seven, Burton are in quite good health in a weird way. Yeah, and I find the best researcher, you know, in the EFL, Ali, you're certainly the best doctor because I know you love taking the temperature of the fans and general things in the EFL. But you are right with, with Burton. I mean, Burton Albion, I've, I've called them new Burton Albion here because it's a, it's a whole new team with a new manager. We saw some improvements under Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank early on. Then we saw basically a whole new 11 of players, with the exception, of course, of the ever-present Lucas Aikens hmm. coming into the side and Kane Hemmings, I should say, as well. And they beat Hull 1-0. And Johnny Smith was the star here. He didn't even start. He came off the bench. 
Sean Clare and Josh Earl, two other signings, really impressing the fans. Josh Parker, too, on the left-hand side. Ryan Broom is, is probably the player that I think could be the best of the lot. He was the one who came off for Smith, having not really done much in the game. Suddenly, the, the personnel that Burton have, the manager that they've got, and the performances that they're putting in are totally different to the Burton Albion that we saw earlier in the season. They're just five points from safety. They've got a game in hand on most teams around them. They've got three games in hand on Swindon. This isn't a case of, you know, can they get out of it? Like, like in Wickham's case, it would have to be a, a, an incredible march. It would take two or three quick wins and Burton would find themselves, if not out of the relegation zone, then on the cusp of coming out of it. So I'm pretty positive about Burton at the moment. It's important not to get too carried away on performances in isolation, but we haven't seen many teams do to Hull what they did to Hull. And it stacks up and makes sense. The evidence is in the players they've got. They are a better team now with a better manager than they were a few weeks ago. So you are right. The temperature of Burton, you know, the fever is down. They're, they're looking healthy. Not so much the case necessarily with the other teams I'm going to talk about. And, and I'm not going to focus too much on Cobblers, on Northampton, because yesterday they sacked Keith Curl. It, it's not a massive surprise. Um, Keith Curl was a manager who... <sighs> Last season was his first ever EFL promotion. And for a guy who's managed some decent clubs in the EFL, that maybe said a lot. The fact that they got into the playoffs thanks to points per game and a lot of their fans weren't particularly enamoured with Carl before the playoff um, campaign says a great deal. What I would say is that I think Northampton under Keith Carl put in probably the best playoff performance I've ever seen <laughs> in terms of the performances in the second leg and that incredible mm. Wembley final. I've never seen a team as up for it and get their tactics so right before. But sadly, as we thought might be the case, personnel changed in the summer. That intensity they played with was never going to really translate over to a full season and Curl has had to pay the price. I don't think too many Northampton fans are disappointed. It's hard to really say where Northampton stand at the moment until we know who the man coming in is going to be. But what I would say is there doesn't look to be a great deal of quality in the squad at the moment. I made the joke at the beginning about Swindon fans being upset that it's not their manager who's been sacked and that that is the case I think some Swindon fans um, comedian Ivo Graham who's been on the podcast before texted me yesterday saying that Swindon WhatsApp groups were very excited by the news that Tiz was now available I said I'm not sure if Chez for Tiz was something to get too excited about <laughs> but I mean Swindon season is falling apart in front of our eyes really as I mentioned they played more games than any other team around them they had such a haphazard January transfer window where for the first part of it it looked exciting they were getting in Decent looking players such as Kieran Freeman. Freeman then two weeks after joining goes to Swansea and after all Swindon Town fans have gone to bed on deadline day, they wake up the next morning to see that Jayasimi, probably their star player, has been sold to Charlton. Fans are tired of Lee Power, the owner, coming out and saying that the club is under threat for its existence, especially at a time where the EFL have said that there is a pot of money waiting for clubs in that situation and he refuses to be more transparent in terms of the club's finances on and off the pitch. It's hard to believe that this this is the same side who just a year ago were an absolute winning machine under Richie Wellens. And it's very, very hard to make a case for how they can get out of this position. They need Mm. Brett Pittman to start nodding those headers into the back of the net rather than the roof of it. Uh, And finally, it's Wigan. And what a job Liam Richardson is doing there, we have to say, because if he manages to save them, it would be one of the best success stories in the EFL this season. They're only in the drop zone by one goal on goal difference behind Bristol Rovers. They have some serious injury problems at the moment. Two of their key young players, Carl Joseph and Tom Pearce, look like they're going to be out for the foreseeable. But for the first time in a long time, I'm seeing on social media arguments between Wigan fans as to personnel and who's going to play where. Um, mm. Funzo Ojo came in in January with Christopher Merry, the, the youth team player, both playing in centre midfield. And with Lee Evans to come back in, conversations as to how they're going to squeeze in all of their midfield options. Uh, Arsgaard is the latest Wigan youth team player to be impressing at the moment in the absence of the other two. And it was a big win for them on the weekend against Cobblers. And if they can continue just to eke out those results, they do have certain qualities in some areas. I still think Curtis Tilt is a very good centre-back at this level. Uh, Callum Lang getting the goal, a few more of those would be really really important for Wigan so a bit of hope then for Burton and for Wigan wait to see what happens with Cobblers and Curl doom and gloom I'm afraid for Swindon Town Mm, doom and gloom at Bristol Rovers as well they might be outside of the relegation zone but that is only on goal difference and they were one of two clubs the other being Northampton and Keith Curl 
to sack their manager on Wednesday. Their second sacked manager of the season, Ben Garner, followed 15 games later by Paul Tisdale. Uh, under Tisdale, Rovers picked up the second lowest points total in the league in that time. So if you are a board that certainly did not expect to be troubled by relegation this year, and you've already sacked one manager, and the next manager has 15 games and the second lowest points total in the league in that time, you can see why you'd get a little bit twitchy. And look, I mean, I'm almost always of the belief when a manager gets sacked that you should look upwards, that it should be discussed as a reflection of poor governance of the club, of poor management, basically, at the top level. And and I think if Bristol Rovers, depending on what happens from now to the end of the season, whether they are relegated or not, I think those at the very top of the club should look hard at themselves and the decisions that they've made in the last year, which have, have really sort of derailed the club. But it started quite well under Tisdale as well. Three wins in four around the turn of the year. It looked like they could start building for next season. I think anything more was was certainly out of reach at that point. But a huge nosedive in form. Just two points from their last eight games, Rovers, including a 6-1 defeat at Accrington. As I say, teetering on the edge of the relegation places. So... The interesting thing for me is that there seems a pretty obvious issue here and it's been the issue since the start of the season, a lack of strikers. Uh, We knew it, the fans knew it, certainly Paul Tisdale knew it and here's what he said after that 2-0 defeat against Oxford on Tuesday night. I'm looking at that group of players now and I've got a team there but we have to be able to score a goal. Um, And We've got strikers of the future, we haven't got strikers of the here and now and I'm not a magician, I can't get a rabbit out of a hat I'm relying on a 20-year-old who's got a dozen league matches with the responsibility to carry the team and put the ball in the back of the net, and that's not fair. Um, I've got a team there, a real team, and the last two days have shown me I've got a lot to work with, but we have to be able to score a goal. It's interesting to hear, actually, almost some confidence in the way that he talks about his team in general. He didn't sound like the sort of defeated manager who knew that he was about to be sacked. So perhaps it was those maybe thinly veiled digs at the board about transfer business that were the final straw. And look, it's also why I'm a little concerned that whoever they get in next will probably encounter the same problem that Paul Tisdale encountered. And they've got a big call to make it, that's for sure. Tommy Widrington will take caretaker charge. He did pretty well in his first caretaker spell. And he he's one of the people who's been involved in recruitment over the last few years at Bristol Rovers. So presumably well trusted by the owner. We'll wait and see if they've got anyone else in mind for that role. But they've got a huge game against Swindon this weekend. They are 6-5 to favourites to win at home to Swindon, who are 19-10, to the draw 12-5 to with Paddy Power. That is one of three relegation six-pointers that League One has chucked up uh, this week. AFC Wimbledon next. They're also managerless at the moment. Their caretaker, Mark Robinson, as we heard on that clip last week, he's not messing around when it comes to improving standards at the club and got a good win against Wigan in his first game in charge. That was their first win in 12 games and got them out of the relegation zone. Now, I maintain and have done that Wimbledon have a level that's above the other teams down here. Out of this group of seven, I think they're the best team at their best, as we saw earlier on in the season when they were performing pretty well. So if Robinson has stopped this nosedive, just two points in 11 games they had before Glyn Hodges was sacked, then I think they can start looking upwards. And I wouldn't be surprised if if we do this in 10 games time, we might not include them as part of the gang. But a lot depends on, on the appointment and if the players are buying into Mark Robinson as it looks like they might be. Uh, and as for Rochdale, the EFL's entertainers, Uh, We asked people on Twitter what they thought about this League One relegation scrap and Dale bring up mixed opinions, which I thought was interesting. Lewis said, whilst Rochdale concede too much, the goals for column will save them. Winning a game every three is better than drawing two and losing one. And I can kind of see Lewis's point. They have scored way more goals, Dale, than the others around them, but it hasn't helped them win games at the moment. They've scored the second most goals in the whole league over their last 10 games, but they've conceded six more than anyone else and they've only won one in 10. Aaron said, after watching Dale as a neutral last night where they lost 4-1 to MK Dons, I fear they're in quite a bit of trouble. A huge 10 days of games coming up for them. And he's right, three of their next five in the league are against Wimbledon, 
Northampton and Burton. So huge few weeks for Dale. They've got to pick up some wins. And I must say, out of the three I've spoken about, out of the three currently outside the relegation zone, I'd say I'm most worried about Dale. That game this weekend at AFC Wimbledon. Wimbledon the favourites. Even money with Paddy Power. The draw, 5-2. to two, And a Dale away win at 12-5. to five. Dropping down into League Two, George. Obviously, just two teams go down from League Two. We always joke that it's a, a pretty hard division to get relegated out of. I mean, how many teams do we have currently in this discussion? Much fewer than in League One, certainly. I think there are three headline teams that you can't deny <laughs> and then two outsiders, possibly, but plenty of others who could get sucked into it. I mean... The ones who we've got to be really worried about are, of course, Grimsby and Southend, who are the bottom two at the moment, and Barrow. Southend have just climbed off the bottom, I think for the first time since very, very early on in the season. We saw Southend beat Newport in midweek. We saw Stevenage beat Tranmere in midweek. So maybe it's actually good news for those three clubs that they've all got games against teams right at the top end of the table on the weekend. Cambridge uh, hosts Southend. Cambridge are 4-6 to six with Paddy Power, the draw 13-5. to five. Southend 4-1. to one. Forest Green hosts Barrow. Forest Green are 10-11. to 11. The draw 12-5. to five. Barrow 14-5. to five. And Tranmere go to Grimsby. Grimsby 5 to 2, the draw 23 to 10, Tranmere 11 to 10. So, in order, apparently this weekend, the likelihood of teams winning goes Grimsby, Barrow, then Southend. Ali, you tell me what you think of those two teams right at the bottom. Well, I don't really know what to say about Grimsby Town because <laughs> there's an extent to which, if you believe in curses, Grimsby are currently the, the sort of cursed club in the EFL because it's not just a, a run of games where they've only won one of their last 15 league games and that was a, a narrow defeat against local rival Scunthorpe who then battered them 3-0 a month later. So the gloss of that win certainly rubbed off pretty quickly. Um, they're at the bottom of the table but George, it's the manner of their last two defeats that's, I mean, it's almost comical. The fact that against Stevenage, Grimsby battled from a goal behind to equalise in injury time, only to concede from kickoff a long ball over the top, tapped in by the Stevenage striker for a late defeat. And then just finding an, another way to lose a game against Newport on the weekend. They played against 10 men for the majority of this game. They had something like 74% possession. They had a ton of, of chances, good chances, half chances, blocked shots, and they lost that game 1-0 as well to a, a second-half goal. So uh, Paul Hurst is still waiting for his first win as Grimsby manager. There's still some residual belief that I have in Paul Hurst. There's some residual belief that there's a chance that this group of players could not be this bad, basically. And I think there's still a chance Grimsby could go on a little run soon. But the question basically is, will it be too late by then? I mean... <sighs> Obviously, Barrow look like they're there to be got at. They're only two points above Grimsby, although they've played two games fewer. And I'm interested to know what you have to say about Barrow, because for, for both Grimsby and Southend, one of the big questions is how vulnerable is this Barrow side? For, for Southend, they've just been so hamstrung by that horrendous start to the season, really. They gave everyone about a 15-game head start. That flurry of wins in December and early January gave some hope, but it was followed by a run of one point in five, and, and they simply can't afford any more of those sorts of runs. A 1-0 win at Newport in midweek, a bit of a smash and grab, but certainly one that will give them hope. There's a bit of life in the old dog yet for Southend, and as I say, I, I still believe that Grimsby could put together a run. So, George, that's the big question for me to you. Do Barrow look vulnerable? <laughs> to being caught by one of these teams if they do put together a run because if not then it's likely that they've got too much to do I think Barrow have probably been the unluckiest side in the EFL so far I look at the data the underlying numbers the XG data and I put a lot of faith in it and even those listening who, who don't like expected goals that the XG data shows that Barrow's XG ratio this season so the quality of the chances they're creating versus the quality of the chances that they are giving up is over 50%. It's better than Cambridge's who sat top of the table. And even if you don't like expected goals, that shows you that Barrow are a side who are consistently in games. They are a side who are consistently getting into positions to win games and for whatever reason are unable to do so. The best period they had this season was under Rob Kelly, the caretaker manager, around Christmas time. They were unlucky under David Dunn. 
There hasn't really been a marked improvement yet under Michael Jolly. If anything, the data suggests a bit of a drop-off. Um, but you have to think at some stage the cards are going to fall for Barrow in the same way that they have done for Stevenage. You know, we spoke early in the season about how Stevenage were the side who were not getting the rub of the green. They were putting in decent performances and not getting results. They've only lost one of their last five games. They've beaten Grimsby. They've beaten Tranmere. They should have beaten Morecambe, really, in a two-all draw on the weekend. And they're an example of a side where if you continue putting in good performances, even if you're not getting the breaks, eventually the points will come. And it's hard to get away from the fact that for Barrow, surely they have enough about them. Surely if they continue playing the way they are, the points will eventually come. Everything that I think about football, any predictive tools that I use suggest that has to happen, which makes it quite difficult to think why Southend or Grimsby can get out of this if Barrow are inevitably going to get the points that their performances suggest that they should. Am I worried about Bradford, Bolton, Scunthorpe? Probably not. No, I think all three of them look to have enough about them given the points gap. Colchester though. Colchester. (laughs) The same XG table, the same XG ratio has Colchester as the worst team in the division, not only recently, but over the whole course of the season. Worse than Southend, worse than Grimsby. An XG ratio of 33%, which by any you know, by any measure is relegation form. If we go back to when they drew against Port Vale on the 12th of December, if you take the date table, so the table from before that game through to now, Colchester are bottom by, you know, they're, I think, a point behind Grimsby. They've only picked up five points in the 10 games since then, which, you know, good mathematician I am, averages out at 0.5 points per game. If you spell that out to the end of the season, they're only going to get 41, 42 points, which means that it's going to be difficult, but that is something for Grimsby and Southend to shoot at. 20 points between now and the end of the season, getting basically a point a game. Should be attainable, you'd think. So Colchester are the ones where if they don't improve, and this isn't a case of them getting unlucky, they are bad and they're playing badly and the results they are getting are sadly justified, then they could be the ones who, if Southend can get a few wins under their belt, if Paul Hurst can improve Grimsby, they could be the ones who get roped into it. A mathematician as well as a researcher, uh, and in my role as EFL doctor, it's time to call this one. Uh, So much still to be decided in the relegation battles, but hopefully with that rundown of all three leagues relegation scraps, you now are very much across it and looking ahead to this weekend where there are some huge games in all three leagues. So enjoy those. That's it from us this week. Thank you so much for joining us. We're back again next Thursday and Matt and co will be with you on Monday to recap the weekend. Until then, from the Totally Football League show brought to you by Paddy Power, that's it. Goodbye. You've been listening to the Totally Football League show Extra Time, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and by following at the Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletic's football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football League show is a Money Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.